Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, the tirade-filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. And I'm Spencer William wow. Johnson. That Spencer, you sound like a law firm when you say it like that. Spencer William Johnson, you know, injured in a wreck, need a check. Spencer William Johnson, uh, we're damn glad to have you, ladies and gentlemen. This is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love, but for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. This week, folks, it's award season, and uh, these movies might have been out for a while by the time you hear this recording, but the the zeitgeist still has them in the buzz of the award season, and today we're going to talk about Pablo Lorraine's Spencer, starring Kristen Stewart, and it's recommended by... Either kind of not me either, but um, I think award season is what recommends it to us because Kristen Stewart is going to be everywhere for this, so we might as well talk about it too. Our <sighs> format is this: the recommending lover. I guess I can try. We'll go first. They will get five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise and state their high-minded case. The hater follows with five uninterrupted minutes of their own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth. After that, we will open it up for 15 minutes of shared conversation where the hissy fit really gets chippy, or in this case, royal, and maybe a little bit of pukey. You know, it's going to be good. So, um, folks, folks, you know, stick your finger down your throat and let's go. Well, yeah, let me let me preface any discussion we have. Um, ah. that I, am, I am not a Kristen Stewart hater. I actually find her compelling. Um, so when I criticize this performance, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I'm going to be doing, obviously, um, keep in mind, it's not from that kind of place. I think a lot of these twilight actors, um, have that burden on them, um, because mm-hmm. that's kind of where they got their start. Like to yeah. me, like if Natalie Portman wasn't in so many great movies before the star Wars movies, like if Star Wars was her start, I think she would have trouble getting off the ground too. She I would agree. have to fight a little bit because those scripts did her no favor. She could not act her way out of a paper bag of those, and that's not totally her fault. Mm-hmm. Um, Twilight's the same way. I think Kristen Stewart and uh, Pattinson are good actors. I've seen them and I've seen them in good stuff. So this will be an assessment of this performance solely from that. So. I think it's important to separate that because I think a lot of people go in hating certain actors. Like, uh, for instance, one of my favorite actors, believe it or not, I think is one of the best comedic actors ever is Ben Affleck. I think people write Ben Affleck off immediately because his name's Ben Affleck because of Mm -hmm. some choices that he made in some of his public stuff. So it's important to separate that, that this is not a Kristen Stewart hating podcast. (laughs) In my opinion, I'm not. I don't. No, and I'll I'll start my five minutes and segue right to that. No, I, I honestly I can stand on on my two feet when with full honesty that I've never watched a Twilight movie, not a one of them. Mm-hmm. So I come to Kristen Stewart pretty clear eyed and just respect her where she can show up as an actress. And I unfortunately, in too many cases, and without seeing Twilight, I see the same Kristen Stewart every time. I see this uncomfortable ball of just. You know, the, the yeah, what everyone makes fun of the the lip roll, you know, the lip biting and the 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 uncomfortable in her own skin thing, which is probably her in real life because it seems like that every time you see her in a PR interview. So that's kind of a a weird, challenging thing. But no, for this movie, and I'll I'll start the clock here quick. Um, 
what this movie does for me is I, I started my review with this. I'm, you know, every movie has a lesson. So I, I kind of tie life lessons into movies. I, and I say when something or someone is unconvincing, even after maximum effort. And that was my thing where I kind of asked the curious question in my review to open it. I said, have you ever watched an actor or actress try and try scene after scene to look a certain part or be taken seriously only to, in the end, remain unconvincing? And I feel like people can cite examples of that over the years, all over the place. For me, one of them last year was the great Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers, where no matter what that man did, and it's Tom Hanks, I respect him a ton as an actor. You, you, no matter what he does with that red sweater and with his little keds on, he is Tom Hanks, and I and I just can't see Fred Rogers in that spot. Mm. And no matter what, with Kristen Stewart, and she, man. She has matured so much from whatever stigma she had with Twilight. She's a fine actress and a firebrand of nonconformity in an industry where, you know, desirable image is still kind of the over-desired target. And she is just not about the typical it girl image and ingenue this and that. And on screen and off, you know, she has that physical and expressive manner about her that is always one of just agitation. And that's Kristen Stewart. And Pablo Lorraine channels her to, you know, channel what Kristen Stewart is, her energy into the guise of one of the most recognizable societal figures and one of the most poked and prodded reputations of the last century where you're you're asking a very uncomfortable, non-limelight person to play a woman who spent so much of her life in the limelight and was a smiling, wonderful presence and a mother. And I, I know Kristen Stewart is 33 now and filmed this movie about the same age as Di would have been when these events were happening. And man, she throws everything she has into it where she has the daintiness. She has the austerity. She has, she's backed by wonderful costumes, really good makeup. And, you know, and it's Pablo Lorraine who did Jackie where he knows how to put, and he's wonderful with making female characters and female driven movies. And it's, you know, it's a blessing that Pablo Lorraine makes the movies he makes. And every fiber of her character is completely gripped by that constricting stress and the onslaught of verbal and nonverbal admonishment with, with, with the place that she was in, because <laughs> chronologically, even though this movie tells itself it's a fable of, of a true story. This is the last Christmas she has before separating from Charles and, and eventually divorcing. And this is the last Christmas before all of the scandals that were always rumored really do come up when they separate. So this is kind of that last, I'm going to choke through family time, hurrah. And I tell you what, no matter what effort Kristen puts into it with the natural twitches underneath that blonde helmet of hair, all I see is Kristen Stewart and the same agape expressions and exasperating line deliveries and like a lip bite or two away from being <laughs> from showing me that it's that it's her more than who she's playing. And hey, I, I admire her taking on a challenge. You know, this is an American actress trying to play a British character. If this was the if the roles were reversed and a Brit was playing an American, we would throw her to the wolves. We've already thrown British actors playing an American characters to the wolves, and yet we've celebrated other ones. We're very picky and choosy. Hello, Henry Cavill. Hello, Daniel Day Lewis. So and yeah, I just I watch her and I and I just see Kristen Stewart. And that's a shame because this is an interesting enough narrative and a, and a very well-made movie 
where if you're trying to play that tortured malaise and that up and down, you know, nervousness and franticness of, of the broken places where this character and true person comes from and where she was mm-hmm. at in her life, all of that is there and is and is ripe for what Lorraine frames as a fable. But you get to that point where, man, I just all of that happens and the more interesting characters to me are the help and the people around her and not Kristen Stewart. She's just not convincing as a mom. She's not convincing to be this woman of this stature and she's asked to do some heavy acting in different places. She's got a a semi great little showdown conversation with who plays Prince Charles, but I'm a person who's watched and I hate to do this and I normally don't compare things, but I've been watching the crown on Netflix for several years here, just trying to catch up a little bit. And every single actress who's played her on that show is 110% more convincing than Kristen Stewart. Mm. And I just, and, and because this is a, the mood, she is the title character. You, without this convincing performance, the rest of the movie just can't hang. And that's where I'm at. This is a beautiful mess of a movie. Is that a, every? I feel like every year there's a war, an awards contender that just loses me that everyone mm-hmm. else is going to love, and this is that one. And there's mm-hmm. probably more than one this year, but like I'm going to get to power the dog one of these days. But that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Um. Well, before I go into my five minutes, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you that. I, I don't normally like to compare things either, but I think when it comes to somebody that is more defined, like, okay, like if we're comparing jokers, right? I mean, you've got 80 years of different interpretations of that character. So you can have some of that uh, differentiation. You can say like, oh, okay, well, I like this guy's performance here. I'm not going to compare it to this one because it's a different take. But when you have somebody who's like, for, like, you can't have like wildly different Winston Churchill impressions, you know, like you gotta, it's, it's good to compare like a real person. So I actually support you hundred percent on using that comparison because it's, it, it makes sense. This is someone who is more defined and documented, you know, than normal other like fictional characters is a, is a real person. So comparison is okay in my mind. Anyways, so I supported you there, buddy. There you go. Uh, all right. So I'll start my five minutes. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't want to say that Kristen Stewart's performance is bad. Um, I was actually talking to a friend of the show, Ben, about this uh, before we went and saw Ghostbusters. Um, you know, I said that I feel like she's doing an impression. There's no humanity behind her performance and uh, a couple people that were listening to the conversation. Well, they, well, it's a fable. It's a fairy tale. And I'm like, well, that's fine, but you can still have stories like that and have a living, breathing character, not someone that you feel is doing an impression. I almost felt like Kristen Stewart was doing an impression of Naomi Watts doing an impression of, Lady die. Like I said, is that the direction? Is that the screenplay? Is that the actor's choice? I don't know. Um, I'm also interested to know what the source of this story is, because um, 
like, I mean, I'm not like an expert knowledge on um, Princess Di or royal family shit, but, you know, I didn't know that she was self-harming herself. Um, you know, uh, I know that she uh, has uh, obviously some major psychological issues being stuck in that prison. But one of my counterpoints to someone saying like, well, her her performance is meant to be kind of more aloof and fantastical is there were two quote unquote villainous roles in this movie. Uh, one of them played by the always reliable Timothy Spall. Uh, he played kind of like the military, like attache who tries to get people in order and in line, you know, for these events and stuff. And, um, he had what I liked about his character was that he has, even though he's kind of portrayed to be this annoying villain, you know, who's doing everything for queen and country. There's a moment where he kind of explains his, why he exists. And there was so much humanity in it where it was like, maybe he's not bad, or at least he's not the villain in his story. You know, he's, He's doing what he thinks is right. And I thought in that one scene, it captured more humanity than I got out of uh, Princess Dive for the whole movie. You know, and that's a that's a tough ask. If you're getting a better performance from a side character who's only in it for a short amount of time and you're relying on the lesser performance to carry the entire picture, that is where it falls off for me. Uh, I also thought that I believe it's Jack Farthing played Prince Charles. He doesn't have a lot of screen time, but what he does do in his screen time is shows that, you know, that kind of awful predicament. Like if the movie shows you what princess dies going through and how she's struggling to handle it, they, they show Charles as this person who has accepted it and has moments of minor breaks. And I like that but he kind of felt a little bit better to me too. I think the biggest sin with this film though, is I think I texted you right after the film. I saw it. I said it was the, you know, the alternate title for this film is on the nose, the motion picture. <laughs> now I, I don't want to, like I said, I, I just said that comparing historical figures is one thing, but I am going to do a comparison in a different way. Um, we have released an episode on Dune. Okay. My biggest complaint about Dune was that I felt that it had all the world building with no emotional stakes. Um, so this, oddly enough, this movie is kind of the exact opposite. It's got the world building, but it has so much emotion that it it fails to find an equilibrium. It, it basically is trying to tell you from minute one, she's in hell. Her life is miserable. Isn't this royal family shit sucky? Like, it, it doesn't have any nuance to it other than maybe that one scene where the kind of the villainous guy gets a little humanity. But it's so on the nose. It's like, okay... I get it. She, this sucks for her. Maybe try to add some layers to it. Instead, it, it wants you to wallow. I think friend of the show, Lauren, said something about seething. This movie's seething. And it wants you to seethe 
for two hours straight. And that's just not sustainable in a story for me. You got to mix it up a little bit, you know? Um, anyway, that's my five and a half minutes. So. All right. All right. All right, folks, we will break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. We know you've been scared watching horror movies by yourself. Well, now you don't have to. Hang out with Ruminations of Red Rum, all things horror from movies to the latest spooky games we've played. Come hang out, but hurry. The killer's behind you. All right, folks, welcome back. No, I like your word of seething. I, I'll admit I like the first one better. The, this seething would be more anger, and the closest we ever get for anger, and I know this is the woman that has to stay composed and never flip out, and she'll flip out in her own little way with you know her self-harm and with what she will share with the people she does trust, like her royal dresser played by Sally Hawkins in a nice little part. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. seething to me feels more like anger. And she doesn't ever flip that switch. Or if she's angry, she just stays angry at herself. I'd rather take this as Wallow, the two-hour movie, because it just mm, feels yeah, like yeah. that. And I know the the closest – where you said you needed some balance, I think you're dead right because the closest we get to just a different side of her, and it's the side that's most celebrated about her now with her legacy, is being a mother. Mm. And the scenes with her children are, are cute and they're fine, mm-hmm. but they feel like – they feel like that uh, not that they feel like that non-obligatory or that obligatory parent scene of like hey i need to take 5 minutes to play with my kids for 2 seconds hey kids come mm-hmm. here let's have an imaginary imaginary game for 5 minutes while I, the camera watches and you take attendance for me being here and it felt like even if the scene itself with the children is meant to cover several hours of the holiday where you know she's trying to you know be, be nice and hang out and there's that nice little car ride in the kfc at the end of the movie where that's your final oh, emotional, jesus yeah that, that's your final emotional <laughs> sorry it, yeah i know i know and I, I thought that was so eye-rolling by oh the way, i know but, yeah yeah and i get talk that about on the nose talk about on the nose it's like exactly she finally gets fast food and what's her name gonna be oh, on the yeah. order at kfc <laughs> Yeah, we say the name of the movie to close the movie. Oh, I know that it's so on the nose, and I get that. That's they're trying to do a positive. Hey, she's going to be fine, and she's going to be a good mom. Emotional beat to end the movie, and they try a few moments in the movie to to visit that, Mm -hmm. but it's just not enough with the rest of it being this stream of up and down, hot and cold stream of consciousness stuff, and. And to your question of, you know, is there roots and is there sources to this after the fact stuff for biographers? Yeah, the self-harm was super apparent from not just the help, but from her own family. Oh, I didn't and, know that. And the bulimia was a was a super, you know, accurate yeah. thing. Like all that is spot on. And the crown goes there, too, in that same kind of way. Mm, now, did it happen exactly as it did the last Christmas weekend and all that? No, that's where fable right, takes right. over. And, you know, the symbol. <laughs> The symbolism takes over. I do love where Kristen, to me, did her best and where the movie got close to seething is that billiard room conversation with Charles, played by Jack Farthing. You're right. I liked it. I liked that it. conversation, that confrontation was fantastic because up until mm-hmm. that point, Charles is just the, the disappointed looking man across the table, just, you know, clenching his teeth going, man, that fucking woman. You know, why she, why can't she be stable? Why can't she be this? Why can't she be that? And when that moment comes of privacy where they can talk it out, where she comes to him with like, Hey, I don't want my kids to do this thing. And he's like, fuck you. They're doing it. Cause I said so. And it's, 
that's not mm. the essence of that conversation. So much right. more shit comes out of that conversation. That was the one top notch scene in the movie for me. Everything else after that, like, like you said, the on the nose stuff just hits so hard. Like, oh, she's so beautiful. She gets gay women to love her too. Oh, she's so free of her shell that she's going to take a jacket on a scarecrow and, and talk about the family that's not there, but then put one of her pristine, beautiful outfits on that scarecrow where, look, she's a dead guise of herself standing in a field alone with nothing to do and the birds pecking at her. Oh, God, the symbolism. It's... In, in a different, uh, I know, in, a, in, in, in in different, in a different way that could play. But man, for two hours, that's a lot. Now I know that that's Pablo Lorraine, but and where he's, he has that observational style, he has that float in between scenes of travel and movement, and that's him, all right. Like we, his movie Jackie, I adore because mm. Natalie Portman in a similar performance of of having to either kind of be tragic or, or wallow her mm-hmm. reasons for wallowing and why she's there are just so much more harder. And Natalie goes there and she convinces me she's that she's Jackie Onassis and Kennedy. And it's, it's so, and I, I, I same thing. I hate being the comparison person, but man, mm-hmm. when you got to follow Natalie Portman doing one of the best things she's ever done. In fact, to me, I know she won for Black Swan. I would have gave her the Oscar a second time for for Jackie. She was so damn good. Mm. And but that uh, movie observes different places where it's grief, and this is like the pre grief thing. Like, look how sad I am for the grief that hasn't happened to me yet. And but try to emote with that same level that that Jackie Kennedy did during those circumstances, and it's just unearned. Or it's the rich girl, and Charles calls her out for it. Like, what? It's not enough for you. Like. I, I get to a point because I just I'm one of those people who just doesn't give a shit about royal gossip either. Where yeah. like, I, I have a hard time feeling bad for this woman. I feel bad for the popper for her end for for the paparazzi thing that yeah. unfortunately got her killed and 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 or, and and widowed two children. Right. I don't give a shit about the royal part on the side. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And um, it's not like and here's the thing. It's not like. You know, she came from like a farm, like no. you know, where, where she didn't have yeah. running water. Like the house across the street is also, you know, yeah. like a, a freaking... privilege comes back to privilege and stays privileged. She never had a bad day, in her, never had a low day in her life in terms of status and socioeconomic. Right, right, right. So it is almost kind of like feeling bad for the millionaire when they're against the billionaire. You know, like mm-hmm. it's kind of like okay, yeah. I mean, you're both going to be fine. Um, now, obviously, yes, she, this is not limiting her pain or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder to relate. What I do like is about this film is that it, it is not making any, like, it's not making any statement that could be middle ground. It's basically saying that this is a whole scam. This whole Royal life thing is a scam. I do Mm -hmm. like that because it at least has the balls to have that stance. Like I like the queen with Helen Mirren, Yeah, but it does have moments where it's kind of, it kind of justifies some of her actions. It kind of justifies some of the Royal family stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the King's speech, which is another movie where I'm kind of like, I could give a shit. It's the Royal family who cares you know, there's still a little bit of 
you know, empathy that you kind of feel for his impediment and, you know, kind of how it plays into the, into the, you know, worldwide stakes of how things look and everything. Um, so there, there were nuggets for me to get in there and feel something, even if it's a topic I could really give a shit about mm -hmm. this one, despite saying the Royal family sucks, which we all know. And I admire that it's, it still didn't have enough for me to yeah. uh, really like care. Yeah. And <laughs> I, and, all. and it's a shame because like the craft is there, like the, the, oh, yeah. the like yeah. I said, the rain cinematography is pretty cool. Cause it does do that floating around with, you know, mopey ethereal characters doing that thing. And, and Sean Harris is a, is a nice supporting actor with given a little part to, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, to be an observational look you know a person that intersects this character and timothy spall you already celebrated who does a nice job and and watch him get a supporting actor nomination because he's been there that'd be great he deserves it I, I, I give it to spall more than harris but because he's got a nice part yeah spall for sure and we'll we're talking we'll be talking about in a future episode unless we aired it first uh about other nominations that are finally going a good solid yeah. actor's way but um you know i, I I actually liked a lot of the cinematography as well. I I, I don't know if this if worked the same for you, but I okay. actually felt that uh, I got a lot of Kubrick, The Shining vibes from this Ooh, film. Sure, a lot um, of hallways, a lot of low angles. Yeah, yeah. Most especially, the most Kubricky scene to me was when she goes into the fridge to eat the desserts, mm -hmm. and the, and he, I got my David Lowry vibes. <laughs> Timothy Spall was standing there. Yeah, kind of like. It, it seemed very asymmetrical, like a Kubrick thing. It had the kind of that bright lighting, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it just kind of had a very shining vibe to it. And I really appreciate that. Or let's just say a Kubrick vibe to it. And I, I really dug that because Kubrick is very, you know, uh, distinctive. Yeah. And um, no, the other helps. thing, the thing, another thing that took me out of it, I, I, I can step back and understand what they were going for, but it just lost me was Johnny Greenwood's score. And Johnny Greenwood is obviously a, a rocker turned score guy. He's PTA's go-to guy. And but this I, I know they're I know they're doing that whole up and down, hot and cold kind of thing with the with the emotional detachment with with or the, the emotional roller coaster this character is going through but the music does it too like you have those flutes and snare drums for a military scene you have that whimsical piano for something idyllic and countryside and then yeah. you get this weird broken jazz in moments of fluster <laughs> and it's just a weird score it's mm, kind of yeah. all over the place i get why people like it because it's unique mm -hmm. but it's uh, i well, we've talked. You and I have talked yeah. personally off off the podcast about how I think, especially younger film critics than us, mm -hmm. maybe like ten to five years younger than us. You know, we're talking we're talking like you know early thirties or or late twenties. Yeah. Just say Byron Lafayette, and we'll know who you're talking about. No, 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 no. He's <laughs> he's fine. I, I think. Uh, well, he's not fine, but I I, yeah. I feel <laughs> that um, it's easy to. Well, first of all, it's easy to fall into hyperbole. Oh, but also, yes. I think it's easy to be seduced by the visual image. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, going back to Dune, I think that my take on it, and maybe even your take on it, is coming more true as the hype has died down. I agree. Because how many people 
when that movie came out, and I'll tie this into Spencer, I promise. Mm-hmm. But when that movie came out, like the first three days, people were able to review that and or see yeah. it in theaters. They were like, it's the greatest film of all time. It's the greatest uh-huh. thing I've ever seen. I think people were seduced by the visuals. Yeah. Spencer, I agree. Spencer is indeed a visually compelling film. Like I said, I like the Kubrick aspects of it that reminded me of Kubrick films. I liked some of the. Um, I think I talked, I sent you a text after I saw it. I think I said, it's like putting makeup on a pig. Yeah. You know, it's great makeup. It's great. You know, all the stuff is there mm-hmm. to make it look great. And uh, you can't fault that. And, and it is a very visual, you know, there's long takes. And like you said, there's kind of this bizarre score, but I think, and maybe this is what the younger critics are thinking as well, and, and obviously older critics like this film too, but I'm just saying mm-hmm. to, to support my thesis, is that people think, oh, this is different, so that means it's good. Right. And I, I don't think we can think that way because there are plenty of films that are... That are both. That good are, and different. Yeah, they're good and yeah. different. Or there are films that, you know, follow a formula that are good. You know, right. so it, it's... Right. It's almost like we're afraid. I'm saying we're in general, like the film critic community, where it's almost yeah. like we're afraid. It's it's okay to have ambition, you know. Right. Um, or, or I'll flip it and say it's okay that something can be normal and executed very well and be because of that good. Not right. everything has to be wacky, crazy curveballs. I, I right. here I, right. we're recording this episode in mid-November. If this comes out in, we might, you know, if this episode comes out in January and Kristen Stewart still has the award buzz for a two-month-old movie, mm-hmm. God bless her. The right, you know, the buzz is there, and pe- enough people think she's great. Yep. But then you get to uh, here we are in November. I'll go back to something in like September and August. Take the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. You know, it, people were wondered by the visuals. You don't hear dev patel's name in any of his oscar talk anymore mm-hmm. like like mm-hmm. everyone was wowed at the moment for something different and daring but then different and daring doesn't last and we're and we're done talking about it and no one's carrying that torch for it anymore it might get a few nominations in technical and art categories but i'd be yeah. stunned i'd be stunned if dev patel is still here in january getting oscar talk same thing with something like um and it's it's just hot and cold where and, and that's probably where the the four year consideration Oscar pushes that studios make keep things in keep things going because they they have sure. to especially with Oscars being another later year this year you could tell mm-hmm. which horses they choose to support so I'm sure Focus Features is has a full court press by the time this movie air or this mm-hmm. episode airs for Kristen Stewart and she'll get her nomination I just don't I, I, we haven't looked at the field and we're not going to try to look at the field but I just I'd be if she wins, it feels like a coin toss whether she can win or not because we've seen the the young actress passed over and you know until it's her time or until they feel like they want to give one to her. Like Kate Winslet mm-hmm. got one later than she deserved. Um, yep. Someone else got one later than she deserved. And we're but yet still the, waiting, we're still waiting for Amy Adams. Michelle, Michelle Williams. We're still waiting for Michelle Williams. Still waiting for um, Amy Adams. We're still Amy waiting Adams. For yeah. Uh, what's what's the the other one I had in my head? Uh, that's uh, Julianne Moore took forever. Right. Um, but, but they'll just yeah. hand one to Emma Stone. Yeah. They'll well, just at, hand one to Jennifer Lawrence. Right. So it's fifty fifty to me whether they honor a young person who's a firebrand and different, or they just nope, it's not your time yet. And you know, Kristen Stewart is not going to campaign for shit for this. No, it's just no. not her. She's not going to kiss any asses. 
So right, right. I don't know if that's going to hurt or help her cause. We've seen people who don't kiss ass still win. Francis McDormand being one of them, but it's different. It's Francis McDormand, yeah. you know. So yeah, I don't yeah. know where it's going to go. I, and going back to your thing about um, doing things differently, it's like there's this paradox because we were just talking about how just because it's different doesn't mean it's good. And that's what a lot of people are saying about Eternals mm-hmm. uh, or said about Eternals because this was a couple months ago. But at the same time, the argument was that, you know, Marvel doesn't do anything different. So give us mm-hmm. something different. And then they do. And it's like, oh, it sucks. And go. it's like, it's yep. like, okay, like, so there's this paradox. It's like, you're screaming for something different. You get it in one sense and it's, you fall in love with the visuals. You get it in a different sense. It doesn't fit like mm-hmm. the formula you want. It's like, it, I just think film criticism personally is, yeah. Uh, as, as we're doing this, I, I have been, I have been told on Facebook that I have said something that is the dumbest thing a person has ever <laughs> heard, which is, ridiculous i've said far dumber things and (laughs) there are there are also it's like that's that's what film criticism is now it's it's the worst movie yeah there's it's it's the it's the best movie it's the greatest movie it's the dumbest thing i've ever heard like i i'm right there with you there's this pendulum that is trash or masterpiece and no nuance in between anymore from film critics like heaven forbid something's a three we've talked about this in the show where like there's this wonderful middle called two three and four not everything has to be trash at one not everything has to be a masterpiece at five some things can just be okay and some things can be very good or just plain in the middle good it it doesn't make them trash and it doesn't make them short of a masterpiece it just makes them right where they belong in the middle because by the time these hot flash movies that wow everybody have their time and day in the sun, they go away. Like, do you have water cooler conversations about Parasite anymore? I sure don't. Not really. There's, and that's the next thing is like everything has to be recency bias nowadays where if it's the hot fun thing to like and then when it goes away, it, it goes away but i always tell people especially with that damn word masterpiece like wait five years fuck wait 10 years you can't sure, call sure. have to me to have to be a masterpiece you can be very good like i someone always pushes back to me and says well don the quality of the movie never went away in five or ten years i'm like i'm like i know but you know what did build or go away is legacy and to me, legacy is an ingredient you got to have to be a masterpiece. Not only are you good, you've shown yourself to be so fucking good that you're remembered or still looked at or still probed or still studied 5, 10, 20 years later. If you're yeah, not you can, that, if you're yeah. not that, you're not a masterpiece. You're just a damn good film. No, and and that, like I said, legacy plays into that a lot too because you could look at somebody like, uh, let's just, I'm going to throw out somebody random. Like, let's yeah. look at like John Singleton, right? Mm-hmm. He comes out with his first picture, Boys in the Hood. which i think is a great movie i'm not going to say it's a masterpiece but like look then you know before he he died unfortunately but you know right you look at the next 20 years of his films Mm -hmm. and it's like oh this is all he could put out right you know and then you look back and you go wow compared to this stuff and Uh compared to what he could do yeah boys in the hood might be his masterpiece yeah you know like it's it's kind of well you're the english teacher 
it's the pronoun part here. Like, yeah. there's a masterpiece, and then there's his or her masterpiece. Uh, like, sure, sure, sure. I think everybody, everybody, from the worst actor in any movie to the to Daniel Day Dam Lewis, everyone has a personal masterpiece. But and I'm one of those people that like I I almost get to the point where I don't want to label people's masterpieces till the day they die because sure, sure. who knows if they're going to uncork something great later in their career <laughs> or who or who or what movie will stand the test of time even when their career is done. So, like, when John Singleton's case, I feel safe to say his masterpiece will be Boys in the Hood. Even if it's not a masterpiece on the level of being a Criterion right. Spine or something that's going to make a sight and sound top 250, for him, that was the best he's ever done. I, Curtis Hansen, uh, you know, he's passed away. L.A. Confidential, his masterpiece, no doubt about it to me. Sure, sure. You know, we, we can do that with people when they're finally... I think you can do that when people are finally dead. In the in the meantime, it's leader in the clubhouse until they do something better. Yep. Unless they're like a walking corpse like Clint Eastwood where it's kind of like, yeah. how many more movies is he going to pump out? Right. And Cry Macho is not going to be in any of the exactly. leader of the, of the yeah. clubhouse. But yeah, so I, I totally agree with you there. But mm-hmm. let us focus. Let's have a final word on Spencer so we don't go too over on this one. Um, yeah. No, final word for me, I'll, you because you're the closer, I'll go let you close here. And a final word for me yeah. is as try as she does. And I tell you what, I see the effort. She's really going for it. And it took balls for a California-American actor to play one of the most iconic British people of the last century. Mm-hmm. She tries, but she, she leaves me unconvinced in a movie that – I know it's purposely cold. I know it's purposely stylish, but you're right. I'm with Will and my partner here. You got to have a little bit of levity and balance. And watching Kristen Stewart attempt to play a mom <laughs> in a very non-mom way, it, it's if I can be convinced that she's beautiful, I can be convinced that she's a self-harmer thanks to the thanks to the ball of of disquiet that is Kristen Stewart. Mm. But I, but if you want me to be to go to her core of this woman who super duper cares about livelihood and being a mom, Kristen Stewart is not that actor that's going to sell that for me. Sorry, Academy. Whew, no. Yeah, no. Uh, you know what? I, I don't even have anything to add to that. You agreed with me, and that uh, that might be that might be the greatest moment in our podcast history. So there you go. Um, all right, everybody. So I want you, I want you to follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit and on Facebook at Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast. Also, find us both on Letterboxd. Thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hissy Fits fits fit. I don't even know the name of my own show. Cinephile Hissy Fit is a 25YL media podcast brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think we both have confirmed this is a splat, yes? Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay. If you enjoyed this show, we have more where that came from with interesting hosts like us. Uh, I mean, that's... I mean, we're right. always Those interesting, are the thing. right? Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, we don't even have to say that. We just well, it's still we're still interesting. Mm-hmm. And then wonderful guests. We will be having guests back, uh, especially throughout 2022. We got a full year planned with a lot of a lot of good stuff. And when I said that, we don't have anything planned. But no, have all, nothing planned. We all have all of, these banked solo episodes in it. <laughs> all available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite shows.
Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com.